And if you have a Bible with you today, turn with me in your Bible to John chapter 8. John chapter 8. As you're turning there, let me remind you that we are halfway through the month of December. We are 10 days away from Christmas. It's about this time of year that I'm sort of on the watch for when I can begin to observe some measure of Christmas cheer, Christmas merriment, or to put it in other terms, I'm curious as to when it starts to feel like Christmas. Uh, That's, of course, a subjective, unscientific, maybe useless observation. For that matter, Christmas time, whatever that is, is sort of a cultural phenomenon, not necessarily a biblical one. Nevertheless, it's just what happens every December. I'm on the watch for when it starts to feel Christmassy, at least to me, and I suspect many of us do something similar. And so this year, it felt like we were coming on Christmas, to use Joni Mitchell's term, It felt like we were coming on Christmas when I was in the grocery store a few days ago and overheard an elderly lady say, December 10th, or whatever day it was, December 10th, it's almost Jesus' birthday. And I smiled. Leave aside the fact that we don't know exactly when Jesus was born, but that's when we celebrate it. Uh, I smiled and others around her did too. I heard someone else say, "Uh, that's right. So in this small moment of Christmas cheer, I smile, but then I did wonder, I wonder where they are. Where are they coming from? What are are they excited about? What do they have in view regarding the birth of Christ? We know that there are those who are bold enough to be pro-Jesus and yet really don't have Jesus. We know that there are some people for whom they are very much for the, the saying of Merry Christmas as opposed to Happy Holidays. And there are some people who are very much for, you know, more public manger scenes and for the public playing of Christmas music and not just those songs about uh, bells and, and, and chestnuts, but, but about Christ. But with any of that, there, there may not be True faith, true salvation, and true worship. We know from Jesus' parable of the seed and the four soils that there is a kind of reception of the gospel that turns out to be temporary. That when things get hot, when life gets hard, some walk away from Jesus. Despite promising signs initially, Some in Mark chapter 4, in Jesus' parable, turn out to never really have had the real deal. And we know from John's gospel account that there is a kind of belief that isn't true belief. In John chapter 2, John tells us that many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. Literally in the Greek, it's he didn't believe in them. He didn't believe in them because he knew what was in all people. 
We saw it in John 6 a couple of weeks ago, where thousands of people excitedly followed this one who miraculously fed them from just five loaves and two fish. But when Jesus got talking about himself being the bread of life, the bread of heaven, and that if they don't receive him, they will die in their sins, many of them were out of there. They split. They were done. They said, these are hard sayings. And so when we come to a summary statement like John 8, verse 30, as he was saying these things, many believed in him. We should rightly wonder what kind of belief this is. We should rightly wonder what will come of these people who were said in verse 30 to believe. We should be hopeful until we learn otherwise, but we should be watchful knowing that there is a kind of belief that can turn against Jesus on a dime. There is a kind of faith that maybe likes Christmas but not Good Friday or likes Jesus' first coming but has no place for his second coming. And most importantly for ourselves, we must be watchful for ourselves. We must commit to continue on with Jesus no matter what and even when he ruffles our feathers. If Jesus has never ruffled your feathers, you may not have read or understood what he meant when he said things like this. John 8, 31 to 59. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you'll become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are offspring of Abraham. Yet you seek to kill me because my word finds no place in you. I speak of what I've seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. They answered him, Abraham's our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works Abraham did. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. This is not what Abraham did. You were doing the works your father did. They said to him, we were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. Jesus said to them, if God were your father, you would love me. For I came from God and I'm here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It's because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. 
When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you're a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets, yet you say, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets who died? Why do you make yourself, who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him, I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him, and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. We're currently in a series working our way through Jesus' famous I am statements in John's gospel account. We've seen in John 6, Jesus saying he is, or I am, the bread of life. We saw last week in John 8, verse 12, I am, Jesus says, the light of the world. And at the end of today's text, as we just read, verse 58, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. And as we will eventually see when we get to it, this is the most audacious I am statement thus far. It is truly a mic drop moment, to use a cultural reference. But there's a lot of dialogue, as you probably noticed, leading up to that momentous ending. Those who believe Jesus in verse 30, and again in verse 31, uh, are given an invitation to to come into his freedom and to abide with him. And from there, there's a back and forth that ensues. And there are probably a dozen back and forth between Jesus and these who are said at first to have believed. Now, that would be a lot of work to sort of outline it according to the dialogue. It's just back and forth and back and forth. It's a ping pong match. So we could reduce it to two primary matters that are being debated. One would be the human condition. How bad is it? And the second would be Jesus' identity. How close to God is he? Or we can treat it on a literary level with three paragraphs. 
as most of our English Bibles probably have marked out for us, maybe even with headings. Here are the headings that I would suggest for the three paragraphs. The first being the offer of freedom. Verses 31 to 38, we see Jesus giving an offer of freedom. If you abide in my word, he says, you are truly my disciples, and you'll know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Or as he says in verse 36, if the Son sets you free, that's him, you will be free indeed. Now while this should have been a sweet invitation to those hearing it, a welcomed encouragement for those who have started down the path of belief. While this should be a thrilling, hope-filling promise to them, instead it sparks a debate. Wait, you're saying we're not free? Is that what you said? We're not free? Verse 33, we're the offspring of Abraham. We've never been enslaved to anyone. On one level, this is just ridiculous. Because there had hardly been a world power in those days that had not subjugated the Jewish people. And as they spoke this, they were clearly under Roman rule in their own land. But of course, they're speaking in idealistic terms, spiritual terms. They're speaking of divine privilege on account of being Abraham's children. They are actually quite different than those elsewhere in the gospel accounts who would make Jesus king now. Or those who, you know, said Hosanna, Hosanna as they waved palm branches in front of Jesus as he came into Jerusalem in great anticipation that he would indeed bring some sort of geopolitical liberation. No, these people in John 8... They have a sense of pride and privilege that refuses to acknowledge any form of slavery, any need for freedom. Can you relate? Does it sound familiar to you? We live in a country founded on freedom. We are a nation that was born out of, well, our own liberation. Of course, we've also done our fair share of enslaving as a nation. But then we eventually fought a, a bloody civil war to, to even try to bring freedom to those who were once enslaved. Freedom is, uh, it's in our DNA you can read almost any headline today as some expression of or debate about freedom. Sexual freedom, marital freedom, freedom of speech, free enterprise, on and on the list could go. Now freedom in and of itself can indeed be a good thing. But it can also, apparently according to this text be a hindrance to true freedom if we have a sense of pride and privilege that would refuse to acknowledge any, any form of enslavement and any need for freedom. The freest American 
at the freest moment in America's history, still needs to hear Jesus clarify in verse 34, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Recognize before Jesus your greatest need. Recognize with Jesus how bad it is. It's not a bad habit. It's not some mistakes. It's enslavement to sin. Determine to keep receiving his word, even when it is a heavy and hard diagnosis like it is here. Remain with him and his word. That's really what the word abide means back in, what was it, verse 31. Abide means just simply to remain. Stick with Jesus and his word, no matter what he says. By the way, there's no need to over-spiritualize this word abiding. It doesn't mean like get to the you know, seventh heaven of the spiritual life. It doesn't mean let go and let God. It doesn't mean some sort of trance where you're abiding in his word or you've been caught up to heaven. It just means sticking with Jesus and his word no matter what he says. It means that when we come across something in his word that is hard to hear, that, that ruffles our feathers, that goes against the flow of our natural thinking, we just stick with what Jesus said. It's just a given. We're just going to stick with what he said. We're not going to doubt it. We won't allow ourselves to, to let God's word become some sort of buffet of truth where we can pick up this and leave behind that. It means that we won't let the culture tell us, even demand of us, that we abandon this part of the Bible, which no longer fits in with civilized thinking. Think of that fork in the road moment back in chapter 6. In verse 60 of chapter 6, many of the disciples heard what Jesus said in the 59 verses before. They said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And then verse 66, many of those disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Peter didn't say, Jesus, those words weren't hard to hear. He said, well, you have eternal life. What are we going to do? We'll stick with you and your hard sayings. Peter was demonstrating the very thing that Jesus would make explicit in our passage. If you abide in my word, you're truly my disciples. You'll know the truth. The truth will set you free. So if I can just be lovingly blunt, stop calling yourself a Christian if you're not willing to stick with all that Jesus says. If you haven't made a resolve to stick with all that he teaches, stop calling yourself a Christian. Quit modifying 
for yourself and for those around you what he said. I say that in all love and concern and in hopefulness that on the other side of whatever you're going through right now, you'll come out a Christian. But if you're doubting what Jesus says in any part of this book, don't call yourself a Christian. If you are a Christian, I say to you, you just keep on believing. You just keep on abiding in his truth. Keep on with it. This isn't a one and done kind of thing. I abided back in 1986. Now I'm free. No, you keep on abiding, and then there's ongoing freedom. And I would say there's probably increased abiding and perhaps greater freedom. There's some safety and peace in in abiding in Jesus' words. There's an ease about just saying, well, he says it. I'm not going to doubt it. And if the sun sets you free, you'll be free indeed. Free indeed. Free from the penalty of sin. Free from the power of sin. And one day in glory, we will be free from even the presence of sin. Free indeed. Well, it's at this point in the debate between Jesus and these one-time believers that it turns now to the problem of ancestry in the second paragraph. The problem of ancestry, verses 39 to 47. Of course, this Jewish crowd sees no problem at all in citing Abraham as their father. Verse 33, and again in verse 39. And Jesus is willing to concede that point, actually. At least ethnically, genealogically. He says in verse 37, I know you're the offspring of Abraham. I'm not doubting your national heritage. But then he flips that argument on its head as it comes to where they are spiritually. Verse 39, if you were Abraham's children, you'd be doing the works that Abraham did. In other words, Abraham received God's word. Jesus goes on to say, I've brought you God's word. I'm from God. And just like Abraham got God's word and received that word happily, so here now you're you're hearing God's word in a sense, but not hearing. You're getting it in a sense in that it's around your, your ears, but it's not going inside. In fact, you're willing to kill the messenger. And that is not what Abraham would do. You are not doing the works of your father, Abraham. They become desperate, even perhaps slanderous in verse 41. We were not born of sexual immorality. Wink, wink. Possibly hinting at, um, well, shall we say, the irregular circumstances surrounding Jesus' birth. Not everyone thought it was a virgin birth, mind you. And surely that reputation followed Jesus his whole life. And then eventually we get to verse 44 and Jesus just states the matter as plainly and directly as possible. You are of your father the devil and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there's no truth in him. So this explains what's behind their unbelief. This explains actually any and all unbelief. 
This is Jesus' diagnosis of fallen humanity. It's not just a diagnosis of the Jews that he was speaking to that day, but any who will refuse to receive God's words, particularly those that are in and through and about Jesus. This explains sin. This explains lies and deceit. What's behind it all? Nothing less than Satan, the devil. It's all demonic. It all goes back to the garden and the fall. And so this verdict specifically, this saying, this word, this is one of those words that you must abide. If you will be free, if you will be a true disciple. Jesus here gives us a not-so-easy test to his invitation of freedom and abiding in his word. We should ask ourselves, can I take his severe, heavy diagnosis of the fallen human condition of which I am a part? Jesus insists that all Lies come from the devil. That every bit of rejecting him is explained by a spiritual heritage that traces back to the devil himself. It's that dark. There are two families, God's and Satan's, and none of us are born into the right family. We're all, yes, born with God's image, There's a sense in which we're all children of God on a creational level. He's the father, of course. He created us. But we're not born into this world with God's disposition. We actually have the traits of another father, Satan. That's why we sin. That's why we lie. We need nothing less than a new birth. We need to be born again. We need to be born from above, as Jesus told Nicodemus in John chapter 3. It's actually something that John referred to back in chapter 1. Verse 11, he said that Jesus came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. That's precisely what we're observing in chapter 8. But to all... To all and any who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but born of God. And to go back to chapter 8, Jesus says, whoever is of God hears God. Do you hear are you listening? You're, you're hearing my words this morning, but, but are you really, are you hearing? Are you hearing God's word? Parents, do you see what we're up against in the salvation of our children? Bring them to church, occasional Bible reading, making sure they know the basic facts of the gospel or the Bible stories? That will not ensure that they go to heaven. 
our, our sweet, little, chubby, nice-smelling babies are born children of the devil. They're in trouble. And so we need to pray. We, we, we need God to do something. Kids, are you crystal clear on this fact that you are not right with God because mom and dad are right with God? You are, you're not right with God because you're in proximity to God things. You're not right with God because you have a Bible, because you come to church most Sundays. You must do business with God. It's between you and God. I love how John the Baptist in Matthew 3, he simultaneously confronts presumption and also offers hope to all. He says, do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. May God raise up our children to be children for Abraham for his glory. Third, there is the question of greatness in our last paragraph. The question of greatness. The last paragraph is about honor and glory and greatness. Synonyms for whether they should apply to Jesus or not. And Jesus insists that his stamp of approval doesn't come from himself or anyone else. It comes from heaven. It comes from God the Father directly, verse 50. And despite all the antagonistic bickering and back and forth that he's gotten all the way through, he just continues to hold out invitation and saving promise in verse 51. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone, anyone, it's still wide open even for these opposers, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Now, when I hear that phrase, keeps my word, I get a little nervous. Did I keep it enough? How much do you have to keep? How am I doing? I didn't keep it so well last week. Ooh, forgot about Tuesday. That was even worse than I remember. Well, don't think of keeping God's word here merely as obeying but just sticking with Jesus. It's not, it's not that B pluses in keeping his word are in and everything under that is out. We just stick with Jesus. We just continue to agree with his word even when it confronts the sin of last Tuesday. And if you keep his word, if you keep in his word, at his word, with his word, not giving up on his word, not doubting or going against his word, you will never see death. Jesus' words at the tomb of his friend Lazarus clarifies what this means because after Jesus said, you'll never see death in John 8, 
John 11, Lazarus dies. What gives, Jesus? Well, Jesus said to the sisters, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. This is what is meant by John's favorite phrase for salvation in his gospel account, eternal life, used around 20 times or so. It's what Jesus means by heaven, or even maybe more, more specifically, a new heaven and a new earth, not some sort of mystical clouds in the sky and ethereal, bodiless experiences. No, a new heaven, new earth. This is eternal life. This is what Jesus means by this promise. Whoever believes in me, though he die, you won't die. Death will be a passage to life, life to the fullest, life forever. But the inverse is equally true. You see, if we neglect his word, if we reject his word, then we will indeed see death. Death eternal. Not just death physical, but death eternal. What the Bible calls hell. Now in our passage, the, the implied warning that there is a death coming that we're all facing and the explicit promise to take Jesus' words in and you'll never see death, sadly, these were not enough for these interlocutors to, to give up, to, to fold their cards, to, to turn things in, to, to start hearing and heeding like they should have done. Verse 52, they said to him, Now we know that you have a demon because Abraham died as did the prophets. You say, if anyone keeps my word, he'll not die. Abraham died. Who do you make yourself out to be, they said. And there it comes back to the question of greatness. You think you're better than Abraham? You say you come from the Father with his word? You, you offer a word about the grave not having power over us, but being the pathway to life. Implied in that is Jesus inferring that he has the power over the grave. He has the means to transform death. He has the solution to the greatest problem ever. And that raises questions about who can say such a thing. Who can lay such a claim Father Abraham couldn't do it. He died. You think you got it? You think you're better than Abraham? And Jesus does think so. And he says so. And he is so. Verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. Now just ponder that. Look at it down in your Bibles. Verse 56. Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. What marvelous and mysterious words. I mean, you're just not going to get a, a fine point on exactly what Jesus is talking about here. You know, what did Abraham see and rejoice in? 
When did Abraham see and rejoice in it? How did Abraham see and rejoice in Christ's day? We don't have answers to those questions. But the greater point, the clear matter, is one of the comparative greatness. You see, if great Abraham of the promises of old, the father of faith, if great old Abraham somehow anticipated with joy this momentous day that can only be called my day by Jesus, what does that say about Jesus? Notice Jesus says, it's my day. Not a single day like the cross or the resurrection, but, 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 but this era, the, the Jesus era, my time. He doesn't say Abraham saw the day. No, whatever the day would be, Jesus, first person pronoun, that's my day. That's what Abraham saw. Again, marvelous words which should beckon their curiosity, if not their faith, but instead it's more protest in verse 50. You're not even 50, uh, verse 57, you're not even 50 years old. You've seen Abraham, who lived and died over two millennia ago? And it's then that Jesus makes his most audacious statement of all in verse 58. Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. There's our I am statement. It's not only a statement about Jesus' eternality, that he was before Abraham, although don't miss that fact, that's important. And John actually began his gospel account with that very teaching, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Yes, it's a statement of eternality, but even more, it is a statement of Jesus' claim of divinity. Notice this I am statement doesn't have any words that follow the I am. Before, he said, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world. He'll say in John 10, we'll see next week, I am the good shepherd. Here, it's I am, period. Had Jesus wanted to merely explain that he had eternality, he could have said, before Abraham was, I was. That would even be grammatically correct. But instead, it's before Abraham was, I am. All of these I am statements are deliberate echoes of Exodus 3, where God revealed his personal name to Moses. Yahweh is the Hebrew. I am is one way of translating it. Many of our English Bibles in the Old Testament use it as a capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D, God's personal name. All the I am statements in the New Testament, in Greek it's ego, a me, if you're curious what that means up there in those those scripts that maybe you're not familiar with. But John 8.58 is the most obvious connection to Exodus 3. It is the most undeniable echo of Exodus 3. 
But it's not just Exodus 3 because there's this section in the book of Isaiah where God speaks and he keeps using I am, I am. Chapter 41, verse 4, I, the Lord, the first and the last, I am he. In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it is ego, a me. Isaiah 43.10, understand that I am he. 43.13, henceforth I am he. 43.25, I, I am he who blots out your transgressions. Chapter 48, verse 12, I am he, I am the first, I am the last. And 51, verse 12, I I am he who comforts you. By Jesus referring to himself as the I am, he was taking on these descriptions of God's divinity and work and care and salvation. And in case anyone would doubt whether Jesus was claiming in verse 37 that he himself was God. You just look at the final response of those who heard those words in their own hearing. In verse 59, they picked up stones to throw at him, but he hid and got away. They picked up stones to throw at him because blasphemy warranted capital punishment in Jewish law. So make no mistake about what Jesus' enemies thought that he had claimed for himself. Now remember, these people believed earlier on, and so they were apparently okay with some things Jesus said earlier in chapter 8. They were okay with, I am the light of the world. They were okay with, I'm not of this world. Uh, They're okay with, you must believe in me or die in your sins. But eventually, Jesus made it undeniably and unmistakably clear what he really had been inferring all along. He is the I am, the self-existent one, the eternal one, the one who is, the one who is self-defining. And so there's no middle ground with this Jesus. There's no use liking Jesus. I think of the old Doobie Brothers song. Jesus is just all right with me. If he's just all right, it's not enough. There's no playing it safe with Jesus in some sort of neutral zone where you kind of like him, see some sort of use for him, but pass the doobie, I guess. You know, I I don't know. (laughs) In times of war, Switzerland is always neutral. Since 1515, Switzerland has been neutral. There's no Switzerland with Jesus. He was not merely a good man. He was not merely a teacher of good morals. As C.S. Lewis famously now wrote, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg or else he'd be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. 
Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. But if Jesus is who he said he is, eternal, son of God, Yahweh in the flesh, then we can we can abide his spiritual assessment of our natural state, severe and hard as it is. And if Jesus is who he said he is, then we can look to him for a new birth, a new life. And we can begin to actually hear from God. Hear his words. And we can then continue to take his words deep inside of ourselves. His words of invitation and promise. Truth that sets us free, free indeed. Promises that death one day will no longer be death in view of his death and resurrection. If Jesus is who he said he is, we can stick with him through thick and thin, no matter what happens and no matter what he says. We can keep believing, keep hearing, keep abiding in his word because of who he is. We can join Abraham and all of heaven and all the saints in rejoicing in his day, the day. Again, not a single day or a single event, but an era encompassing his death, his birth, his life, his teaching and miracles, his resurrection and ascension, his present reign. All of this rests on nothing less than the fact that Jesus is the great I am. Before Abraham was, I am. And this is what we celebrate at Christmas and all year round. A whole Christ. Holding nothing back. Buffeting no bits off to the side. We celebrate this Christ. All that he is, all that he's done, all that he has said, all that he is currently doing, all that he one day will do. Let's take it all in, holding nothing back. This is abiding in his word. This is freedom. Let's pray. Oh, Lord Jesus, we thank you that in this rebuke to half-hearted, would-be believers, you offer invitation and promise 
We thank you, Lord, for truth like this, for hope of freedom and no death. We pray that faith, true faith, even the new birth, would abound in this place, even now. We pray for the salvation of our friends who are with us this morning and haven't yet come to see. We pray that they would understand that their rejection of you is devilish and leads to eternal death. But belief in you and hearing from you is true freedom and no more death. We give you praise, Lord Jesus, for all that you are, all that you have done, all that you are doing, and all that you will do. And we look forward to that day when we shall praise you in your presence before angels and saints, countless in number, forever and ever. Amen.